0: The road less traveled. Special thank you to Peter and Amy last week for an awesome message for Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Uh, Today we go back to our normal sermon series in our regularly scheduled programming in James chapter 1 if you want to join me there. Uh, Recently the Barner Group conducted a survey amongst self-pronounced Christians. He found that uh, many of us are, well let's just say it, illiterate when it comes to God's Word. Uh, in the study, 48% of us could not even name the four Gospels, 52% could not identify more than three of Jesus' disciples, 60% could not identify more than five out of the Ten Commandments, and 71% thought God helps those who help themselves is actually a verse in the Bible. <laughs> Some of you, that's like nervous laughter right there. You're like, it's not? <laughs> no. Uh, 61% thought that the Sermon on the Mount uh, might have been taught by Billy Graham. (laughs) There's an epidemic of biblical illiteracy, and the really weird thing about that study was that was not conducted amongst rabid atheists uh, or, you know, Richard Dawkins fans. Uh, That was conducted amongst people who actually say, uh, the Word of God is really important to me and it plays a special role in my life. Uh, In this book that you see behind me on the screen called, Your God is Too Safe, uh, Mark Buchanan writes this, Curious times these, there is a simultaneous glut of the Word of God and a famine of it. A drought and a deluge. We have every translation of the Bible. You can imagine the NIV, the King James, New King James, ESV, the Preacher's Bible, the Worshipper's Bible, the Spirit-filled Believer's Bible, the Left-Hand-Bald Gypsy Fiddler's Bible... You can have it in hardback paper, leather cloth in pink, red oxblood, turtle shell, iridescent orange, psychedelic paisley. You can get maps and charts and appendices and concordances and a hologram of the temple in the back. You can even get a little sleeve with a Blu-ray disc that takes you on the guided tour of the Holy Land. And then he says this, the food is out there and it's a banqueting table. We're just picking eaters. Oh, we're buying Bibles, and sometimes we're even reading them, but there's not much evidence that we're studying them. Sad, isn't it? Uh, It's amazing to me how uh, much useless trivia uh, gets lodged and trapped inside of our heads, though. I talk to so many people who know everything there is to know about Tom Brady and and the Patriots. uh, They they know sports like an encyclopedia. They can tell you who won the Super Bowl in 73. They know who played third base for the Yankees in 1955. On and on and on. Averages, statistics. I talk to other people. They know every single piece of celebrity gossip there is to know. It's like they study People Magazine as if there's going to be a test later on. Uh, The capacity for knowledge is there. We're just not applying our ability when it comes to God's Word. But friends, Christianity makes an astounding claim. The claim is this, that God can be found by reading the pages of a book called the Bible. That God can be found by reading the pages of this book. I've never gotten over that. There's a great blessing here, but that blessing is not automatic. In fact, just because we have a Bible doesn't mean we get the benefit of it. That's the subject in James chapter 1. The title of the message today is Living by God's Word. The topic of the book of James is simply this. If you've had a genuine encounter with Christ, what difference will it make? If you've had a genuine experience, an encounter with the living God, what difference does it make in your life? That's what James is all about. And here in this particular passage, he's asking and answering this question, what kind of relationship would you have with the word of God? How would that change if you've had a real encounter with Christ? And so that's where we pick it up. And I'm just going to remind you of verse 18, even though we looked at that last time, just for context. So let's take a look. If you're ready, say amen. amen. 18 said this, of his own will, meaning God, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now pause just for a minute. I want you to notice in verse 18 that he calls us the first fruits. Now if you remember, if you've studied the Old Testament, then you know the first fruits from your field always, always, always belong to God. Uh, You were not to eat them. You were not to sell them. You you were not to uh, distribute them. You were not to keep them. You were to bring them to the Lord. And so here, what James is saying is that we are his first fruits, meaning we no longer belong to ourselves. We belong to God. Okay? Now, the next thing I want you to notice there in verse 18 is that phrase, the word of truth. The word of truth. The reason I point that out is because throughout this passage, I want you to trace that same concept, that same theme, although he uses different words to describe it, throughout the text today. Here he calls it the word of truth. Later in verse 21, he will call it the implanted word. In verse 22, he will say to be doers of the word. In verse 23, he will say not to be hearers of of the word only, And then lastly, in verse 25, he will call it the perfect law that gives freedom. All of those things are synonyms. They all refer to the same basic concept, the idea that God has communicated from above, from heaven to us and given us his word. And the topic here is what do we do when we have an encounter with God's word? Now, God's word can come in many forms. It could be spoken to us just by reading his word in the privacy of our own homes. It could come perhaps through a loving brother or sister in Christ who brings us his word. It comes sometimes even through music. We hear the word of God there. Or it could come in a more formal setting like here where you hear a word coming in the form of a sermon. Whatever the setting, it's not really important where or when. The point is we're encountering the word of God here, which is a great blessing. But James says you have to have the right attitude in order to receive that blessing. And that's what he tells us in verse 19. Take a look. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Wow. Now, here at NBC, we believe the Word of God is inspired and fallible and inerrant. Every single word of it that affects every single ministry that we have here at this church. That means how we serve in our children's area. It affects how we uh, serve in our youth program. It, it affects how we do small groups, how we do discipleship, how we practice hospitality. It affects how we engage in our mission. It affects how we worship, and it affects how we preach from this pulpit right here. Every area of our church is grounded in and submitted to biblical authority. The reason is because God says right here, the mark of a God-changed heart is that you love to have God tell you what to do. The mark of a God-changed heart is that you love it when God tells you how to live and what to do. You see, this is so different from our culture, isn't it? This is the road less traveled. The the world's way is like this. If I could just use this uh, representing the word of God. The world stands up here and looks down at the word of God And says, I like this, I don't like that, I like this, I don't like that. But God says, no, 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 here's how I want you to position yourself. I want you to put the word above you and let it look down on you and let it it say, I like this, I I don't like that, I like this, I don't like that. See the difference? See, we read the word of God, but we also must allow the word of God to read us. So unpopular today. Our culture views the Bible as irrelevant at best, and maybe at worst, Dangerous and culturally regressive. And if that's your mindset, allow me to say this. This is not a modern day problem. Don't you realize there's parts of every culture that run up against the commands of the Bible? Cultural values change over time. Don't you realize there's some things that your grandparents believed that you're embarrassed about? Are we so naive as to think there's not things that we believe that our grandkids Are not going to be embarrassed about? Do we think we've got it all figured out? No, every culture has values and those values shift and change over time. In our culture, we we tend to think that the commands in this book that have to do with you know marriage and sexuality, those are offensive. But there's other cultures. Uh, for example, people who have had experience with real evil and real injustice, they find the commands in this book about forgiveness to be offensive. They find other parts of the Bible to be offensive. And the point is, if this book is really from above, then wouldn't it contain parts in it that rub up against every single culture in the world? Of course, of course we would find that to be the truth. Every culture needs correction. In fact, pastor and author Scott Sauls says it this way. What makes the Bible so relevant? It shows no interest in being relevant. The scriptures which have informed so many generations and us and you are not man-made. They are God-breathed. His word is dependable. It doesn't change. Fads change. Opinions change. Recently I was doing a little spring cleanup going through my desk in some other areas looking at all this old junk I have, old hard drives, floppy disks. Remember the, the actual flop? I still have some of that old operating systems old computer manuals, expensive stuff at the time, totally obsolete, totally worthless now. Uh, It's all irrelevant. It's got the wrong programs. Everything changes. Even science changes. By the time they put a science textbook out, it's already out of date. Everything changes. But there is something that never changes. The Scriptures tell us in Isaiah 55, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Jesus himself said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. That's what we need. It's like this. For centuries, the sailors before navigational systems used to use the North Star to navigate the seas. The reason why they would always keep their eyes on the North Star is because it never changed. They know where that is, and if I know where that is, then I'm here, and I I know where I need to go. They can navigate based on something that didn't change up there. You need a North Star in your life. You need something that never, ever changes, an unchanging position so that you can receive guidance. Friends, that's what Jesus offers you. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's word brings with it an unchanging position. Now, if we want this to be our authority personally, James says you need to do three things. Take a look again at what they are. Number one, I need to be quick to listen. Number two, slow to speak. Number three, slow to become angry. Now, I think those are three general principles that are true in all of life. I should probably just always be quick to listen, slow to speak, you know, two ears, one mouth. I should listen twice as much as I speak. That's a good, good rule of thumb there, you know, slow to speak. Can I also add in our day and age, slow to post, brothers and sisters, be slow to post, okay? But here in this context, What James is talking about is our reaction to the Word of God. I want you to know the context here. And the reason why is because the Word of God brings with it an inevitable crisis. We have desires, James told us earlier in chapter 1, that are contrary to God's desires, desires of the flesh and towards temptation and sin. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And as a result, sometimes there's some things in the Bible that I hear that I don't want to hear. And when I do, my defenses go up and it can well up my emotions because it's an open confrontation with my conscience. It's hitting a nerve. And so the temptation for me is to be quick to speak in my defense and I might even get angry about that stuff because at times I'm going to find this confrontation to be painful and the stakes are really high in my life and so I have this self-protective reaction. James knows this. And so James says, I want you to do the opposite of what is natural when it comes to being confronted with the word of God. Instead of getting defensive and upset, that's going to create a barrier between you and hearing from God. So instead, he says, I need to be receptive. That's the right attitude. Can I say that with you together? I need to be receptive. That's how I prepare my heart to hear from a holy God. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Do you do that? Are you willing to hear the word of God when it's spoken to you? What if it disagrees with you? If we want to be living by God's word, we need to be receptive and for me, this is, does not come easily. You can ask Julie. She, she will tell you that I'm not always receptive. Sometimes I'm, I'm quite proud in this area. And I don't want to hear correction. I don't want to hear the truth. But then I remember that the Scripture tells us even later in James, God is opposed to the proud. He is opposed to proud husbands. He is opposed to proud pastors. He is opposed to proud fathers. And I need to instead be humble, as it tells us in verse 21. I must be teachable and yielded and willing to be changed and supple and moldable in the hands of the potter. A while back, I was putting together this piece of furniture. It was just a bookshelf. So I did what I always do, what any self-respecting man does. I tossed out the directions, and I thought, how hard could this be? (laughs) Well, After about 30 minutes and building something that looked like one of the pyramids or something, I thought, yeah, I think I'm going to go check out those directions. About an hour later, the bookshelf was built. My wife's happy. I'm the hero. I'm like Tim the Toolman Taylor there. (laughs) A lot of us try to do life alone. We think, "I I can handle this, I don't need the instructions, but we're building a disaster waiting to happen. That's why to grow spiritually, we have to accept that the Bible is our authority. It's God's way of showing me how to build my whole life. And so I can't act like I know it all already. Instead, I need to be willing to listen and learn something new and receive something new. Because if I think I know it all, God's word can't get through to me. And so I approach it saying, God, show me what you want to see in my, want me to see in my life. Do what you want to do in my life. I want to be more like you. It might hurt to hear, but it's kind of like taking the splinter out. You've got to get it out. It's kind of like this picture you see on the screen. You have these two different people. The difference between these two different people is not intellectual capacity. It's not that one of them has an intellectual deficiency. There's a moral issue going on here. A lack of receptivity, a lack of humility. This other person, because of their pride, they remain unclean. They cannot accept the word. And then the the person who accepts the word is humble and... And, and they begin to bear fruit. That's why James says in the text that we need to accept the word of God. The word for accept there is a hospitality term. It was used when you would accept someone into your home. Oh, come on in. Yes, please, sit down. I want to ex, you know, extend my welcome to you. That's how we are to, to interact with the word of God, that we're so glad that the word of God has come to us. That's the way we want to be if we want to receive the blessing. That's what the Bible calls wisdom. Wisdom. Now, there's another word that dis- describes us if we don't have that attitude. It's found in Proverbs 17, verse 10. A quiet rebuke to a person of good sense does more than a whack on the head of a fool. The question is which one do I want to be? What is my reaction when I have an encounter with the Word of God or when someone tries to speak the Word of God into my life? Am I quick to listen? Am I slow to speak? Am I slow to be angry? Am I unapproachable? Or am I inviting others to speak into my life? That's what, that's what we need to do, give an invitation. How can I get better? Notice again, James' language, he uses the word planted there. That's the image of soil. It's a common metaphor used in the Bible to describe the Word of God, that it's like a seed. Remember one time Jesus told that parable about the sower, that there was this one kind of seed, but that it got planted in all these different types of locations each with a variety of different fruitfulness. Now, how is it you can get two people and they both hear the same exact word of God, same message, but only one person gets blessed by it, the other person gets nothing out of it at all? The difference is not the seed. The difference is the receptivity of the soil. I know sometimes a lesson from the word of God just isn't very good. I know. I've heard some of those. I think I've even taught some of those. But other times, the real cause in me not bearing fruit has to do with my own heart and how it's not receptive. That's not good. And so we need to be receptive. And then James goes on to say, now that you've received it, here's what you need to do next. Verse, Verse 22. And do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror, and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently, into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. Now notice that word blessed at the end because I want to come back to that later. But what I want you to notice here first is that James is likening the word of God here to a mirror. And all of us regularly use some kind of mirror. There's two ways to use a mirror. You can glance at it or gaze at it. You can glance at it, just take a peek, you look, you're not going to really do anything about what, what you've seen. Or you can gaze at it like it says here. Notice the phrase, look intently into the perfect law. Uh, Interestingly, that same exact Greek word is the word used to describe Peter when he approached the empty tomb on Sunday morning, Easter Sunday morning, stooped down and looked intently into the empty tomb of our Lord. Now, how do you think Peter looked into that empty tomb? Do you think he looked at it kind of like how we sometimes look at the Bible? Oh, look, an empty tomb. Let's see what else is going on. No, his mental faculties were going crazy. His mind was blown. Every circuit was like firing away, right? What could this mean? His thinking was going into overdrive, asking all kinds of questions, all kinds of implications. I mean, what, what could this mean? That's the idea behind how we are supposed to look at God's word. We are supposed to look intently like investigation, which is the next step if we want to be blessed by the Bible. I need to be reflective. Can we say that together? I need to be reflective One of my favorite books of all time is Mortimer Adler's classic, How to Read a Book. It talks about how to read, which seems ironic that a book would teach you how to read. But it is very well written. When it first came out, there was an advertisement in the New York Times for the book. Let me just read you the advertisement. The ad had a picture of an adolescent young man reading a love letter. And it said this. This young man has just received his first love letter. He may have to read it three or four times, but he's just beginning. To read it as accurately as he would like would require several dictionaries and a good deal of close work with a few experts in etymology and philology. However, he will do all right without them. He will ponder over the exact shade and meaning of every word, every comma. She has headed the letter, Dear John. What he asks himself, is the exact significance of those words. Did she refrain from saying dearest because she was bashful? Would my dear have sounded too formal? Maybe she would have said dear so-and-so to anybody. A worried frown will now appear on his face, but it disappears as soon as he gets to thinking about the first sentence. Well, she certainly wouldn't have written that to anybody. And so he works his way through the letter carefully. One moment perched blissfully on a cloud. The next moment huddled miserably behind the eight ball. It has started a hundred questions in his mind. He could quote it by heart. In fact, he will to himself for weeks to come. And then the ad closes with this sentence. If people read books like that, we'd be a culture of intellectual giants. And can I just add, if we read the Bible like that, we'd be a church of spiritual giants. The Bible is God's love letter to you. Do you read it like that? If I went into your house, where would I find your copy of the word of God? Sitting up on a shelf collecting dust on the back, you know, behind the back windshield of your car there between Sundays, that's kind of where you store it right before you go into church. Where do I find your copy of the word of God? We need to pour over this book and look intently into it and gaze into it like a mirror. In fact, James says to do that continually, which is why we put outlines in your bulletin so that you can take notes and uh, follow along. But it's not just so that you can follow along with us. It's so that you can have a record of what God is saying to you through his word. Not because what we have to say is so important. It's because what God has to say is so important Puritan pastor Richard Baxter says come to church not to hear with a careless heart as if you were to hear a matter that little concerned you but come with a sense rather of the unspeakable weight necessity and consequences of the holy word which you are to hear and when you understand how much you are concerned in it and truly love it as, as the word of life it will greatly help your understanding of every particular truth Here's what Baxter saying During a sermon, God is speaking to you and to me. During a sermon, God is speaking to you. Let me say that again because I don't know if you got that. During a sermon, God is speaking to you. So we encourage you to reflect on it. The U.S. Air Force did a study where they found that 95% of the stuff we hear, we forget within 72 hours. That is so depressing. I am a pastor who comes up with new content because you guys are voracious with your appetite. You want new stuff every week and you forget everything, 95%. What am I doing with my life? It's pointless. Okay, no. <laughs> Write it down. You can look at it later. You'll be reminded. Please, I'm begging you. And I need to write it down. The old adage is true. The weakest ink is better than the strongest memory. Be reflective as you look in a mirror. Now, the value of a mirror is twofold, right? First of all, a mirror tells you the truth, for better or for worse. Years ago, Queen Elizabeth, who was very beautiful in her youth, ordered that all the mirrors be removed from Buckingham Palace because she could not stand to see her face growing old. Maybe that's how we feel about the Bible. We just don't want to face it. We just want to put our head in the sand and not think about it. Things can't be as bad as maybe we don't want to see. Mirrors tell us the truth. Facts are friends. Secondly, mirrors show me what I don't necessarily see on my own. Is my hair okay? Don't laugh about that. Is my jacket in place Mirrors are made for giving me a perspective on things that I can't really see without the mirror. Yeah? Just like a physical mirror reflects how I look on the outside, a spiritual mirror reflects how I look on the inside. That's what the book of Hebrews tells us God's Word does. It detects the thoughts and intentions and motives and desires of my heart. That means when I look into the mirror of God's Word, I'm supposed to see myself in there. That's the point of Bible study. It's not for information. It's so that I might encounter my real self. This book is alive. It exposes me. It convicts me. It understands me. Does that happen to you? I hope so. But what good is it when I see in the mirror and if I don't do anything about what I just saw? The answer is it is good for nothing, my friends. That's why he says in verse 22, do not merely listen to what the word says. The word for listen there is the word for auditor. How many of you, when you were in college or grad school, you audited a class? You know, you just wanted to take it, but you didn't want to, you know what I'm talking about? A few of you? If you audit a class, I remember when I audited this one class in the summer, I didn't care about taking the class for credit. I didn't care about doing any of the work. I wasn't going to read any of the books, and I certainly wasn't going to do any of those research papers. I had no intention of doing the work for that class. I was auditing it. James says, don't come to the word of God like that. Don't open your Bible to to listen and enjoy it and and have no intention on carrying out what you've just heard. If you do that, he says, you're deceiving yourself. See, see, we can't make the mistake of thinking gaining intellectual information is the same thing as spiritual maturity. That's not the same thing. In fact, the Bible says knowledge puffs up. It creates a kind of spiritual pride. But James says here, no, no, no. The test of real spiritual maturity is not knowledge. It's obedience. The test of real spiritual maturity is not knowledge. It's obedience to the word of God. That we might be like Christ, which brings us to our third point. When we encounter the word of God, we need to be responsive. I need to be responsive. Can we say that together? I need to be responsive. Notice how many commands James gives in this section. We call them the imperatives. In verse 19, take note of, let, be. Verse 21, get rid of. Verse 21, accept. Verse 22, be doers of the word. This is a section of action. It's not about talking the talk. It's about walking the walk. If I don't, I'm deceived. Let me just give you a humorous example. Let's say you as a church, you see me up here, And you say, you know, I think Pastor Dave's getting a little out of shape. You know, maybe too many luncheons over there, connections corner over there, and, uh, you know, summer connections. Maybe he needs to ease up on that stuff. And you come to me and say, you know, we're concerned about your health, Dave. Um, We don't want anything to happen to you. We love you. So we uh, took up a small collection, and we we bought you this gift. It's Dr. Oz's new book, Food Can Fix It. Uh, It's the, you know... The book that has changed millions of lives around this topic is fantastic. It will change your life. Read this book. Take a couple weeks off. Let this be a blessing to you. I say, okay, great, thanks. Then you go away, and we come back and talk again in six months. But I kind of look like the same guy. And you say, well, what happened? Didn't you read the book? And I say, yep, I read the book. Man, I enjoyed the book. In fact, that is one of the greatest fitness books I have ever read in my life. I love it. Here, look at my copy of the book. I have highlighted whole sections of that book. I've underlined stuff. There's certain, you know, sentences in here. I, I can recite from memory. In fact, I got a group together. We had a small group study on this book. And we, we talked about what it would look like if I were to actually carry out this book in real life. And we, we looked at some of the words in Greek and Hebrew. And I love this book. It is like one of the greatest dieting books I have ever seen. Thank you for the book. What would you say? Pastor Dave, you're deceived. You made the mistake of thinking that intellectual information is the same thing as maturity. You made the mistake of thinking, because you had knowledge, you're changed. That is not true. Having knowledge of a diet book does not produce six-pack abs or lean muscle mass. Just because I know something doesn't mean I'm necessarily acting on it. Knowing it isn't enough for James. It's not enough. In fact, he says it's useless. But friends, how often do we do that kind of thing with the Word of God? We underline it, we have studies, we, we mark up our Bibles, but we don't actually apply it. Are we deceiving ourselves? One time I was talking to one of my mentors about <clears throat> going through the Word of God in a year, and he said this. It's not how many times you've been through the Word of God. It's how many times the Word of God has been through you. When I encounter the authority of the Word of God, how do I relate to it? As I'm walking down the path of life, going down the road, maybe I might come across a few signs. Let's put it this way. Let's say you come across a sign that looks like this one here. Or maybe this next one. Or let's say you encounter this sign. Or how about this sign? What do you do? Those signs represent an authority. They're saying, don't come here. It's dangerous. Now, how should I react to those signs? Let me just give you some options. Option one. You could say, this is a stupid sign. I, I know better than this sign. I'm going to go ahead and play in this area anyway. I reject this authority. I don't like it. I'm going to do my own thing. That's what I used to do when it comes to God's word. I went through a very rebellious phase of my life where I didn't want to live by God's word until God got a hold of me and I had this spiritual awakening and I realized God is smarter than me. And his authority is for my good. Or another way I could interact with these signs is I could say, um, you know, this sign's kind of out of date, isn't it? I mean, this was for another time, another place, another age. It really doesn't apply to us anymore. This sign is old fashioned, right? Option three. This sign really doesn't mean what you think it means. I know those words seem like they mean a certain thing to you, but when it says keep out, for example, that's just your interpretation. When I see keep out, what I read that as is go right ahead. Option four. I am sure God would want me to ignore these signs because God would never want me to be unhappy. God would never put me in any position in my life where I would ever do anything that would make me unhappy. All kinds of excuses, right? Self-deceptions. That's out of date. That's wrong. I don't like it. That's your interpretation. Why are those signs posted? To ruin your fun? To make your life a bummer? Those signs are for your own good, for your protection, for your safety, for your health, for your own flourishing to keep you from disease, to keep you from getting eaten by an alligator, to keep you from possibly even death there. Just like that, the Bible's filled with all of these commands, do this, don't do that. Why does God do that? To make our lives miserable? No. He is a loving God who wants to protect you, and these things are for our own human flourishing. He knows what's best for us. Our God is a good God. He's not trying to hurt you. He's a loving God. He's a good, good father. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from him. Even his word written to us. And he says, here's some rules for your life. If you ignore them, you might get hurt. If you obey me, though, you're going to find something. And what you're going to find, James says, is this, freedom. Notice how he says the perfect law that gives freedom. That does not make sense to anyone in our culture. We define freedom as the absence of any restriction. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it, how I want to do it. Get out of my way. We want complete autonomy. That is our definition of freedom. That is not how the Bible defines freedom. That is how the Bible defines bondage. Because pretty soon, I want, I want, I want becomes I can't stop, help. That's bondage. The Bible defines freedom this way. Living how God made me to live. A fish does not find freedom in hopping out of the water and just living somewhere else and saying, ah, forget that water. I want to be free to live up here. No, no, no. A fish finds freedom by living how God created the fish to live. If you buy a car and you say, I want freedom never to change the oil in this car. Freedom. Restrictions. If you talk to the manufacturer and say, that's what I want to do, they're going to say, you're going to destroy your car. Freedom is living how the manufacturer designed us to live. We find his instructions in this book right here. I emphasize that because sometimes we read God's word and we think, this is life restricted. It's like do's and don'ts, thou shalt, thou shalt not. That's not what it is at all. God created you. He knows how the design works. A life lived in accordance with the Bible is life unleashed. This is hitting on all cylinders. In fact, the psalmist says this in Psalm 119 I run in the path of your commands. Why? For you have set my heart free. That's why David could say, Oh, how I love your law. Here's the truth the more I allow God's word to change me, the more liberated I become. That's the truth. Now go back to James just for a moment and let me make one more comment about that interesting phrase, the perfect law that gives freedom. It's repeated again in James 2.12, by the way, and you might say, why does he say it like that? New Testament scholar, listen, listen carefully, New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg states in his commentary on the book of James that this cannot be referring to simply the Mosaic law or the law given to Israel. We know that that law was not perfect and that it was not even sufficient because it had no power. Secondly, notice how he calls it the perfect law. There is something better. There is something new. And so Blomberg and many others have observed, and I would agree with them, that James is not simply referring to the old covenant law written on tablets of stone, but that he must be referring to the new covenant law written on the tablet Of the human heart, etched there by the Holy Spirit of God Himself. In other words, for James to call it the perfect law that gives freedom is James' way of referring to the very gospel itself. That's the law that gives freedom, the gospel. It's the good news. It's the good news that Jesus came and fulfilled the law perfectly on my behalf, lived the life I should have lived, died the death I should have died, rose again, conquering the grave victoriously, keeping the law perfectly in our place and purchasing my freedom. So now I am no longer enslaved and no longer need to live for myself, but now I can lay down my life and live for him. He kept the law perfectly so that I might now be able to keep the law or to put it another way. When we come to the word of God, When we encounter the Word of God, now, everywhere we look, in every single chapter, in every single verse, in every single place that we look, we find the Gospel and Jesus right there. He is the Word with a capital W. And that's where we find him in this book. Martin Luther used to call this the cradle that holds the Christ child. That's where we find him. You want Jesus to speak to you? This is where he speaks to me. Oh, how preciously and tenderly he speaks to me in this book right here. This is where you meet him. It's all about him. Every story is about him. Every law is about him. Every hero points to him. Every verse is somehow about him. Years ago, we read to our kids a book written by Sally Lloyd Jones called The Jesus Storybook Bible. It was much more of a blessing to the parents than I think it was even to the kids to read this out loud to them. And this is what she states in that book. Listen carefully. There's lots of stories in the Bible. But all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story and at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece in a puzzle. The piece that makes all the other pieces fit together and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. Friends, that's what this book is all about. He said himself, Lo, I come in the volume of the scroll it is written of me. You search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. These are the scriptures which speak of me. This is where we find our Lord Jesus. Jesus. In reading his word, I get to know him better and better. And in applying his word, I become more and more like him. There is a great blessing in this book, but the blessing of the Bible comes when you start living it out. The blessing of the Bible comes when you start living it out. Amen? Worship leaders, would you come? And as they come, let me just remind you of one final story that Jesus told one time. And I can't help but think that this was in James is mine when he was writing this passage as his older half-brother Jesus closed the Sermon on the Mount with this parable. He said this, "'Everyone who hears these words of mine "'but does not put them into practice "'is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. "'The rain came down, the streams rose, "'and the winds blew and beat against that house, "'and it fell with a great crash. "'But everyone who hears these words of mine "'and puts them into practice,' is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. The blessing of the Bible comes when you start living it out. Amen.